Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Hello, everyone. Hello to you, my beloved listeners, my intimate strangers. This is Leanne Nguyen speaking to you from New York, and it is January 2019. I've decided to just only have one more month on the air um, and to move on to other adventures. So today and for the rest of the month, um, you will just find me, me talking to you. So um, as you know, I, I am Vietnamese. I am a refugee and an immigrant many times over. I'm also a psychologist. And for my whole professional life, you know, so far, I have studied and treated victims of trauma. So I know something about it. And it made sense then when Voice America offered me the chance to do a show. Uh, they said, you know, you can say whatever you want to say, talk about whatever you know and want to talk about. So it made sense that I immediately said, okay, I'll talk about trauma. You know, and I went to the Sufi poet Rumi, who said, the wound is where the light enters. And so in conceiving this show, I wanted to explore how to let the light enter through the wounds. I share with you my observation earned from 20 years of clinical practice that the wounds are what define us. So I wanted to know about that. But as we moved into the season, I found myself moving away from trauma and more toward the beauty part. I found myself wanting to know the ways in which we are brave and beautiful. I found myself going toward Chekhov, who urged us to look for the beauty forged from human living. Chekhov, who said, don't look at the moon, look at the glint of light that shines off the broken shards of glass. That's us. When I reached out to my guests, I only knew that each of them would have something to teach me about the human condition because of the interesting choices that they had made for themselves. I did not know what they would say. I just followed my instinct for real human beings. So, This holiday, this Christmas, when I was taking stock of what had been said on the show uh, to to capture what I had learned, I came across an essay by Archibald McLeish, uh, an American poet, who wrote on the occasion of um, the flight of Apollo 8 exactly 50 years ago, and that was the first, you know, a flight from the Earth orbit, and it was during that flight um, that a photograph was taken of our home planet of Earthrise. And so on that occasion, McLeish wrote that, to see the Earth as it truly is, small and blue and beautiful in that eternal silence where it floats, is to see ourselves as riders on the Earth together, brothers on that bright loveliness in the eternal cold. Brothers who know now they are truly brothers. And that quote made me conscious of the thing that was said repeatedly during this radio show. 
all of my guests, each of them in their own way, said that what is meaningful and gratifying to them is the connection to people. Each of them admitted in one way or another that they derive pleasure and purpose from being with other human beings, that the realization of a bigger, larger, deeper connection to other beings outside of themselves is the inspiration, the salvation to their life and their work. My friend Carol Prendergast, the human rights advocate, talked about how meaningful it is for her to reach beyond the sense of being different. She was born an albino. And to make her life's work about helping to connect people with one another towards the aim of helping them reach their potential for dignity. She also told us about this, the seed of her work, which was watching the love between her grandparents, who bridged over many differences and put kindness and mutual respect above all else. Bonnie Rabin, the leading family law attorney, spoke of the belief in people's need for love and her faith in helping protect that human need. And she would be echoed later in the season by Ada Haslocker, the divorce mediator. Jay Rodriguez, an American-born jazz musician, spoke about the joy and meaning of finding the beauty in life and bringing it to people. And he was echoed later by Quynh Nguyen, my Vietnamese friend uh, and concert pianist, who talked about reaching into the composer's life experiences, joining hers with his, and bringing the discovery and the melding of their selves to the audience and becoming one with the music and with the audience and how that was her great reward. The same thing Clive Gillinson, uh, the director of Carnegie Hall, spoke of the same pleasure for him to live well as a human is to reach beyond ourselves, to go towards others. The psychologists also, um, well, I have grown cynical of my profession, which is a point I will share with you later on in a month. But the psychologists who agreed to spend an hour with me shared that the gift that they appreciate about their living and working is to say yes to people, to immerse in and protect the community of humans, to love and to be loved, to be of service to fellow human beings. The anti-trafficking advocate working out of Vietnam when I asked her about the means and strategies for fighting human trafficking said, the greatest resource we have is the human resource. The Vietnamese born uh, pediatrician who had run for office uh, when she saw mothers in her medical practice broken by healthcare policy. And then she herself was heartbroken when seeing children be separated from their parents at the American-Mexican, um, uh, US-Mexico borders. When I asked her about the meaning and joy in her life, Dr. Mai Khan said, talked about uh, loving her mother and child, about seeing them exist fully and beautifully as who they are. Julian, the immigrant and victim of untold abuse, told us about his journey out of brokenness towards the light, which had led him back to finding a way to love and to receive love, back to the connection that he has with the rest of us. The painter and psychoanalyst who spent nearly a decade painting portraits of homeless people told me about the one thing that would hold these homeless men and women together alive, and that is the fraternity and love and support that they have towards one another. That painter, uh, Stuart, I think is nearing 80, and um, 
and he had many accomplishments and, and in his life and, and has learned many things about the human condition. And when I asked him to share one thing that he has learned, he immediately said, love. Pardis Cabriai also, uh, who has been tireless in advocating for the rights of men detained in Guantanamo Bay, spoke about the dehumanizing uh, forces that, that, these, that wrench these men away from their families. And she told me that the one thing which kept these men alive, pseudo-sane and pseudo-human, is the community that they have with one another, the connection that they have with one another as faithful children of God. My own knowledge, my own practice with patients has taught me that, that people have hurt my patients, but it is also the kindness, the connection to people that has saved them. You know, in my work with trauma victims, I have learned that it is the bridge to people that heals. Life can empty you out. It can put you on your knees by taking your child, throwing you into a war, turning you into a human pawn in the games of politics, mass incarcerations, trafficking, etc. But what kills ultimately really is the lack of access to companionship in the aftermath of the blow. In the aftermath, when you struggle to make meaning of what happened to you, when you try to remember your way back to being human, when you need reasons and reminders of what human contact can hold, that's the time where it is so crucial, so life-saving to have the connection, the companionship. What kills in that aftermath is the failure to be seen and heard and held and held back up on your feet by the hands and the hearts of other human beings who confirm for you your humanity and your connection to mankind. I've learned after that from talking to rape victims, you know, that, that, that after, after a rape or a traumatic loss, it is the ability to connect with another human being that separates the true survivors from those who merely stay alive in the aftermath. Jeff Deskovich, a guest of mine who was sent to jail on a wrongful conviction and won exoneration after 16 years in prison and went on to find his purpose and great achievements as an advocate and reformer in addition to a multi-million dollar settlement, said to me unequivocally, that what he still struggles with, that what remains intractable from his trauma of wrongful conviction is the inability to be intimate with people. This man who overcame unimaginable odds to come back to life and be an inspiration to society still suffers because he cannot find companionship and connection. So I have shared with you on this show why I think it is important to ponder the question of what makes us human. I believe that the question is an ethical, existential, and political and even economical question. But the actual answer I didn't know for sure, you know, about what makes us human. But now as I am ending the show and and, and I saw the quote by McLeish, I realized that that is what the show has been about a hymn to the fact that we are brothers on the bright loveliness in the eternal cold. Other species do not need one another in the way that we do, not in the way that came out of my conversations with the guests on this show. 
We are brothers on this earth. We are interconnected. That is what it means to be human. What makes us human in the, is the fact that we need one another. After this show, after my guests, I shall never let go of that which I know, that other human beings are the source of support, of love, of inspiration, that the connection to other humans is what sustains and at times even saves us. Think about the moment right after the birth for a human. What do we human infants need to survive? To be connected, that's what we need. To be connected with another human body through skin contact, voice, smell. To be held, to be born, you know, B-O-R-N-E. To be born by other human hands after being born is crucial to staying alive and thriving. What did the people in the Twin Towers or on the airplanes plunging to the earth on that morning of September 11th do? Why did they spend their last minutes of life seeking to affirm? They all said, I love you. I met a Vietnamese girl years ago in Paris. She had been in the same refugee camp as I was and was a little bit of a celebrity for being the only survivor of her boat. They all sank. And they, they all died. And she swam. She, she swam for four straight days in the open sea and was eventually rescued. And when I asked her how she did it, she said, I thought of my mother, the connection. Carla, uh, a, a, a recent asylum seeker from Honduras, uh, told me when she about the journey that she took from Honduras through Amer- South America here, uh, and still being traumatized by the violence that she had uh, witnessed uh, in her homeland, said to me uh, that what sustained her the most was the kindness of the Mexican guards. We are brothers. But I'm also aware of the other side of this interconnectedness. We are also our own worst enemies. We are saved by the love of others. We can also be killed by the hate or indifference of others. We humans kill one another like no other species can. We know how to destroy one another in countless unimaginable ways. We are capable of disarming tenderness but we can also destroy another person without even resorting to an actual weapon. There was a Spanish movie that I saw 10 years ago, um, El Secreto de Sus Ojos, about the power of grief. It was it was a pair of newlyweds crazy in love, and the guy came home one day to find his wife and, you know, murdered. So he went and looked for the murderer to exact revenge, and when he did catch the man, his revenge was to lock him up in a cell in an isolated house And every day he would bring that man, the murderer of his wife, only food and water for years. That's all he would do to the man who destroyed his life. No word, no physical contact, no eye contact, no exchange, nothing human. I will never forget the scene when the prisoner begged him, please talk to me, please say something to me. That scene explained to me that the ultimate punishment for a human is the disconnection from other humans. It also helps me understand why, for example, solitary confinement is the ultimate form of torture. You know, you don't have to do anything to destroy another human being beyond separating him from all forms of human connection. They do that in American prisons now, you know, to children even. 
A listener asked me earlier uh, in the show, what makes you human, Lan? My answer was my desire for connection. That's what drives my work and this show. But there's something also darker, more wounded that drives me. I am angry and sad in seeing how we treat one another. We seem to have forgotten how to tend to, how to honor and protect one another. We seem to have taken our beauty for granted and to trample on our own fragility. I am heartbroken by the lack of kindness and tenderness in the world right now. The way that we conduct our lives right now, at least in North America, is as if our mission as, as a culture, as a society, is to issue a denial to the fact that being human means that we need and depend to one another. You know, the, the driving ideology, really delusional and, and so dehumanizing, is that we do not need one another, that we are not all brothers on this tiny spot in the universe. We organize our life purpose, our living arrangements, our policies to affirm that we're self-sustaining, self-defining, insulating atoms that do not affect one another and whose aim is to make it to the top to win at all costs, all by ourselves. You know, the man in the White House who says America first, who promised that America is going to win, is not an accident. He is there by the will of the people. Well, okay, but (laughs) he's also there with the help of the Russians, but, you know, millions of Americans pulled the lever for him. The man, that man who officially speaks for America, is actually, to me, the realization, the concretization of the sensibility and the solution of the people in this country. So instead of crying about it, we should thank our president for forcing us to take a look at ourselves because kindness and tenderness are not easy. And we deserve his solutions. We elected him because his solutions appeal to us. Let me break for now because I'm being signaled that we're up for a commercial break. And I'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. It's time to have a healthier relationship with money. Use it with purpose to create the life you envision. At Thinking Big Financial, your future starts right now. 
Services include financial planning and investment management. It's not just about the numbers. It's about how they fit into your life. Reach out to Jim to start thinking big about your own financial life. Because isn't it time? For more information, visit thinkingbigfinancial.com. That's thinkingbigfinancial.com. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. A basic law of organic biological life is that no living things can survive alone, correct? I would like to elaborate, too, that no humans can survive without kindness. No humans can be her most human without tenderness. What do I mean by kindness? Let me just revisit that. You know, it is when we extend to the other person a recognition of his struggle, a willingness to see his woundedness and to join him in that place of pain, of fear, of togetherness from your own recognition of your own struggle. To be kind requires that you be willing to recognize and be respectful of your own vulnerability. Be able to say, I see your struggle because I'm willing to remember and acknowledge mine. I can be kind to you because I want to seize your humanity and because I'm willing to let you see mine. Only when you remember your humanity can you be truly kind. And what do I mean by tenderness? To be tender is to accept the responsibility that one has towards the other human human being in front of us. To let the recognition of her vulnerability and beauty be the inspiration for our action. You know, to be tender is to let yourself be split open and disarmed by the other person's need for your protection and loving gaze. And then to step into the loving like a warrior with skills and courage and commitment. You know, because it takes courage and skillfulness and willingness to offer our strength and beauty and lovingness to another person. It's not easy. It takes a lot to be loving and tender because you have to be willing to step out of yourself, your puny, imperfect little self, to be curious about and in awe of the other person's beauty and fragility. And then at the same time, you have to be able to pull from the center of yourself to ground yourself in your own humanity, to go back to all that you know, your wisdom, your vulnerability, and then offer yourself from that place of wisdom and of love, offer yourself to the other person. At the core of this is a sense of an act of recognition of the other human being, and the willingness to acknowledge and honor the connection that we have 
with that other human being. And that is absent in contemporary life, at least in the country where I live right now. And please don't equate or don't conflate the recognition that I'm talking about with political correctness or trigger sensitivity or empathy training, you know, because these other exercises do not require that you do the work on your own vulnerability. They do not require that you be honest and brave and put yourself into the encounter with the other person from the core of your humanity. When you follow these other measures, you know, of being politically correct or sensitive or empathetic, you take refuge in sentimentality. You do not act from the heartfulness that there is something at stake for you in that connection, that your humanity depends on the recognition that you extend to the other person. The British psychoanalyst Adam Phillips has taught me this in his uh, in his quote, Acts of kindness demonstrate in the clearest way possible that we are vulnerable and dependent animals who have no better resource than each other. About tenderness, I, let me quote back Milan Kundera, the Czech author, who said so beautifully, tenderness is the attempt to create a tiny space in which we mutually agree to treat each other like a child. And I wish to tell you, as we are soon to take leave of one another, that we seem to be losing this capacity for recognition of the other person's vulnerability. We seem to be relinquishing this willingness to cherish the connection that we have with other human beings. Many of you were touched by the story that I shared of my encounter with the Iraqi colonel who had been tortured by um, the American guards uh, at uh, Abu Ghraib. You know, this man who was trying to drink himself to death as a way to erase all the degradations that had been inflicted uh, onto him. This man had every reason to hate or be scornful of people. But he recognized something when he watched me be undone by the work of witnessing cruelty. And so when he saw me upset uh, on the roof of our hotel in Istanbul, chain smoking, you know, in order to to numb away my rage, um, he came over and took the cigarette away from me with the carefulness with which you would take a shard of broken glass out of a child's hand. And he said to me, stop. It will kill you. I will never forget the tenderness that he extended to me in that moment. And the orange then afterwards that he offered to me was an act of recognition that surpassed any offering that could come from lovers. Because it was a recognition of my pain and because it came from an acknowledgement of and an honoring of his own woundedness. And when our eyes met, I read his humanity. I read that he said to me, I have known pain and destruction, and I'm now choosing to destroy myself. And I see you're doing the same, but I'm choosing to safeguard you because I want you to live. He said that, he did that, not because he knew me or had any attachment to me. There was no investment in that moment in me other than that I was a human being in pain and in need of recognition, just because in that moment we were humans. 
Now, in contrast to that moment in Turkey when I was, uh, you know, uh, an adult professional woman, there was an earlier moment, much earlier in my life, when I first experienced, you know, the the the, the opposite, the, the the visceral, bewildering effect of not being recognized and of being withheld kindness. It uh, it happened when I was about 12, 13, and I was uh, escaping from Vietnam. You know, my mother and I were on a boat um, floating in a China Sea, and we finally uh, saw land, and we swam in, you know, on, onto the shore. And then hours later, it was there was nobody there, but hours later, I guess, they caught on that, you know, hundreds of Vietnamese people had just landed uh, on the shore of Malaysia. So soldiers came, and, and they kind of did their thing, you know, and herded us uh, onto trucks uh, in the blazing sun. So I was, I, I was, you know, being herded onto the, the back of a truck, and there was an old woman uh, bef- in front of me, and and she she fell on top of me as she went up to the truck. So instinctively, you know, I put out my arms, and she was heavy, and I was just a kid, and I turned to the soldier, the Malaysian soldier next to me, and said, you know, of course, in Vietnamese, because well, that's that was the only language I knew. Then I said, you know, Uncle, can you please help me? And I'll tell you, it was the first time in my life ever that I understood something about this business of, of being human or not being treated like a human. He just stood there and looked at me like I did not exist and he did not move. He did not even blink. And so the old woman just, you know, came crashing on me and we just like then scrambled and did our own thing. You know, I, I learned that my words had no effect on another human being. I learned that I could cry out and, and and not be heard. And that was the not being heard, not being seen, told being told that I was irrelevant, you know, that I had no impact. That was just very powerful. And I think that that informed a lot of my choice uh, of work. Now, a few years later, when I was uh, about 17, 18, I learned about what is required in tenderness from my own failure to offer tenderness. And there was a terrible moment uh, when I encountered my smallness and, and learned about how emotional weakness lies behind indifference and lack of kindness and, and the withholding of tenderness. That terrible moment happened when my father received the news of his father's death. At that time, we were still in France, you know, barely finding the grounds on which to rebuild our life in exile. And I came home from school one day and I found in the mailbox a telegram announcing the death of my grandfather. Now, this was, you know, before FaceTime and Skype and so on. We were not even able to to telephone. You know, my father had not been able to see or hear his father's voice for many, many years because um, he had left Vietnam well before my mother and I did and, and, and had been barred from returning uh, to Vietnam by the communists. So I handed my father the telegram and turned around and went to do my homework. And then I heard a sound and turn around to be confronted with a sight that totally, totally disarmed me. My father crumbled in the chair, sobbing like a baby. My formidable, warrior-like patriarch of a father, he was sounding and looking and acting like a baby. 
And my brain understood what was happening. You know, a death had been announced, but my heart refused to move, to act. I, I kept saying to myself, that is not my dad. I do not need to do anything right now. I don't know what he needs right now. I don't want to know. And there's nothing I can do for him right now. I walked away from my sobbing father. I literally just turned my gaze. I didn't have it in me to even touch him or say anything to him. In that moment, to be capable of tenderness and kindness towards my own grieving father would have required for me to acknowledge my own terror of loss. And I would have had to find the strength and the faith in my own capacity for loving in order to come over and be with him. But I couldn't. I didn't. I couldn't face the living evidence that it could happen to me, that it will happen to me one day. To lose one's father and to be momentarily reduced to a helpless, inconsolable infant. And I couldn't be sure that my offering of love would be enough against the tidal wave of grief and need that was pouring out of my dad in that moment. So I didn't do anything. I failed to go towards him because I was uncertain of my capacity for love, because I was terrified of his mortality, because I didn't yet know how to let the light enter through my wounds and find strength and beauty and wisdom in my losses. And that moment, I think, was embedded into me, that branding of my smallness, of my failure, I think it has driven my work. I didn't do anything for my father as a daughter. And so I am now always trying to do the best that I can as a human being for other people's father and mother, and maybe one day redeem myself. I wish for you to accept my definition here of what is needed to practice kindness and to offer tenderness. And that is a mutual recognition of what is wounded in each of us. The courage to let the beauty and vulnerability of the other person touch us, disarm us. The sense of responsibility that we should feel towards other human beings on our path. I wish for you to accept this definition of mine so that you may pause and consider how utterly monstrous, how utterly careless we are right now in treating one another, humans to humans. Look at Hurricane Katrina, what happened? And then look at Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, what is still happening now? Look at what is happening with immigrants at the border of the U.S. Look at what is happening in Yemen or how Jamal Khashoggi was silenced. Look at how we lock up our children or how we abandon the ill and the aging to die alone. Look at who we in America chose to represent us, how we let him speak for us, about us. That moment between me and the Malaysian soldier on the beach from years ago when I was 13, that moment happens every day now in America 
That moment where one person stands stone-faced, deaf and dumb and mute, unmoving and unmoved towards the other person's plea for recognition, where one person says to the other person, you are nothing to me, you are not human to me. That moment leads to homelessness, mass incarceration, abuse and violations in in prisons, in schools, in nursing homes, to abject poverty in one of the richest countries on earth, to deportation and splitting up of families, to mass shootings, to climate change disasters. Instead of kindness and tenderness, most often now, I think we show fearfulness and scorn or indifference. Let me take a break for now for our second commercial break, and I'll be back to resume. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. It's time to have a healthier relationship with money. Use it with purpose to create the life you envision. At Thinking Big Financial, your future starts right now. Services include financial planning and investment management. It's not just about the numbers. It's about how they fit into your life. Reach out to Jim to start thinking big about your own financial life. Because isn't it time? For more information, visit thinkingbigfinancial.com. That's thinkingbigfinancial.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. So you know by now that my thing is that I'm angry and heartbroken at the same time about how we uh, conduct ourselves with one another. You know, my, my, my thesis is that we don't seem to know or care anymore about kindness and tenderness. 
Now, if you disagree with this or wonder what I'm talking about, try this. You know, when you're out in the community out there and interact with other people, try to look at another person. Really look at and go to him and talk to him. Say something deeply personal and deeply loving. Offer him something of yourself or ask him something of himself, of his being, not, not his possessions or privileges or what he does um, in life, but, but him, his self. I guarantee that you will, at least at the first instinctive condition to respond, that you would get suspicion or fear scorn or derision even, sometimes maybe embarrassment. Same thing. It all comes from that place of what are you doing? Don't touch me. Don't get too close. Don't ask that of me. Or what about you trying to offer yourself? Because what about if you try to say something like, you know, we may not see each other again in this life. One of us may die tomorrow. Let me get to know you. Let me give you something of mind to take with you. <laughs> you would get an embarrassed laugh or, you know, some admonition to not be so morbid or morose, you know, or be told to have no boundaries or, or that you're inappropriate. Well, uh, let me tell I think that, 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 well, I remember now that that happened to me when I was, uh, years ago, when I was, um, traveling on a mission in Sudan, uh, the borderline of, of Sudan and Chad. It was during the conflict uh, in Darfur. And I was with the Americans, uh, again, even though, you know, I was not really an American, neither by birth nor by choice. But we were a team of uh, professionals going into refugee camps uh, that had been set up there for victims of the genocide that was um, raging on. The women there had lost much of their families to men uh, on horses that would come in to their village to torch up their huts and kill and rape. And uh, young children, when I asked them to draw me pictures of how they got to us, to the camps, they would draw pictures of men on horses, huts on fire, sheep being slashed into bits and pieces. And they would write, they would title their drawings, you know, Janjaweed, Janjaweed. These little ones uh, would still dream uh, of the Janjaweed of these horsemen who raped and hurt and killed most of their families. So I worked with a local team, you know, driver, guide, cook, interpreter, health director, and so on. And I got close to these local workers. I didn't get close to the refugees in the camp, though, because we didn't eat or wash or sleep in the same quarters. But, you know, I actually, I did love sitting at the end of the day silently next to, you know, some random scattering of women. Uh, refugee women enjoying just the reprieve from the sun, you know, the breeze of the desert. And I loved watching their faces, watching the mix of, of grief and gratitude and fierceness in their eyes as they watched the children play in the dirt. And I felt quite at home in those moments and quite uh, comforted among these grief-stricken strangers um, because I think that Maybe I felt that as an adult, you know, I was stronger. I was able to sit with them, close to them in their grief, unlike that moment of failure that I went when I was 17 with my own father. 
at the end of the mission, you know, we said goodbye and I started to say to the local team that I wanted to have something from them to take with me, that I didn't know what to do with the fact that this may be the last time that we would see each other. And I would never forget a distinct sound. It was a chuckle from my American colleagues. And one of them even said, come on, Leanne, we have the emails. We're all connected now. Well, I never saw these workers again or heard from them. They were all killed eventually or died of some disease or banished into the wilderness of civil wars in Africa. When I asked of something of them, I knew something that the Americans did not want to know. I knew that you can love someone in just a brief moment of time, not because they can do something for you, but just because you come to care deeply that they live and that the glimpse that you have of someone from the window of the airplane can be the last time ever in your lifetime that you shall lay eyes on them. But that, that chuckling sound, you know, it scolded me. It said, Leanne, don't be so dramatic. It's not never again. And, and one of my colleagues even reminded me, we're friends now. Come on, we'll see them all later, maybe in New York. You know, come on, Leanne. I knew that sound of fear and embarrassment. It is a very particular sound, a, a distinct sound of folks who are afraid of being touched by life and folks who have not had to or have been spared you know, the, the, the acknowledging that you can be robbed of everything that you hold dear, of everyone that helps you know who you are in this life, in one quick random blow. Man, man, oh man, I, 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 I often feel so estranged, so bereft when I hear that chuckling, pleading, disapproving sound, the sound that actually says, don't make us acknowledge uh, how fragile, hurtful, unpredictable this life can be. Don't confront me with how much we need each other. Don't act as if our connection with another person can be so precious and so fragile. Those white men who chuckled at me in the desert of Sudan they were not willing to act from within that knowledge. They knew, though, because they knew how this life can be from having been in that camp for weeks. But they would not want to behave in the goodbye as if something was at stake for them, as if they knew this thing about life. And so they did not care to ask for tenderness when saying goodbye to our African colleagues. And they did not dare to go on the assumption that we shall never see each other again. Now, why? How can we assume that? How can we assume that we have unlimited time with each other? How can we deny that we're affected, altered even, by each encounter with other human beings? And what if we acted, what if we lived with that acknowledgement at, at, at the forefront of our brains, at the tips of our hearts, that, that other human beings can alter our being if we were to just acknowledge and let them in. That it matters what we do and say to one another. You know, something precious, something essential is being under assault, heading maybe even towards extinction. 
the impulse to destroy, to grab, to insulate, has been replacing the choice to be tender and to connect. Now, I'm not um, an alarmist killjoy here. Somebody told me that in his uh, recent TED Talk, Pope Francis called for a, quote, revolution of tenderness. Margaret Whitley, an author on leadership and a major coach to global leaders, has issued a call for us to rise up and be warriors of the human spirit because it is under assault. Um, Last month, National Public Radio uh, in the U.S. ran a whole month-long series called America the Kind, which reports on acts of kindness, um, and their aim was to highlight and, and to encourage kindness as a social liner. And one story in, in, in their series of American the Kind that struck me was the story of this, um, this psychologist who, he said he had been, you know, struck, so struck by grief when one of his uh, adult daughters died of an illness. And he, he was, he fell into, I wouldn't even call it depression, into grief. Um, and nothing helped. But what saved him was the friendship uh, he went to the gym uh, just to get himself out of bed, and, and there was a trainer working there, and it was her kindness, her friendship that saved him. And what did that consist of? He said, she just came over and talked to me. She remembered my name, and we talked. You know, no clinical talk, but we just talked human to human, and that's what restored him back to life. Um a few young patients of mine told me to to check out Hannah Gatsby, apparently the most streamed comedy, uh, you know, stand-up show um, about, you know, being a victim of homophobia and abuse and so on. But at the end of the show, she said she talked about connecting. So there is a need. You know, the disappearance of kindness and the extinguishing of tenderness These are directly related to the breakdown in our sense of connectedness to each other. Um, A Lebanese-American poet by the name of Khalil Gibran said about friendship that it is a sweet responsibility, not an opportunity. We need to learn to accept the sweet responsibility that we have towards one another. We need to learn again the relevance, the importance of seeing, hearing, touching, recognizing one another. Otherwise, we're all going to die. According to the CDC, the suicide rate in the U.S. is up 33%. Since 1999, that's less than 20 years, it's gone up by 33%. There's a loneliness epidemic in America. Americans now have fewer confidence than in the past. In a study done uh, about 10 years ago, a quarter of Americans said that they had not spoken with anyone in any meaningful way about matters of personal importance to them in the last six months. That's half of the year that goes by without them having a meaningful conversation. This past year, a study of uh, 20,000 American adults found that more than one half said that they feel their relationships are not meaningful and that they feel isolated from others. A survey by AARP showed that more than 42 million American adults suffer from chronic loneliness. That's one in three adults. 
So there is an epidemic of loneliness, indeed, of disconnectedness. Now, a medical doctor issued this call. He said, you know, as medical providers, it is our duty to approach loneliness with the same fervor that we address smoking, diabetes, heart failure. Note that he's cataloging it as as a medical condition. What to do? Oh, thank God there's Paxil, Prozac, Effexor, Wellbutrin, Zoloft, Lexapro, Selexa. I probably have forgotten half <laughs> of what's currently medica- being prescribed. You know, one in six adult Americans now relies on psychopharmacology. How can we have an epidemic of loneliness and disconnection when the whole world is connected at the keyboard? Why is it hard to feel connected when we live in an age of connection? of no privacy, of instant viral recognition? Why do we fail that recognition when we can instantly know everything about the other person by Googling them? In my view, this loneliness epidemic is an indicator of the corruption in connectedness, of the extinction of connection, of the thing that makes us human. At the heart of this epidemic is the disappearance of kindness and the lack of tenderness. So how do we practice it? How do we reclaim it? How do we stay human? What resources do we have? How do we train and cultivate and practice this thing of kindness and tenderness? How do we not dehumanize one another? I want to end this hour by saying that our survival really Our happiness, our survival depends on how we treat one another. So let's think about that together, shall we? I will take leave for now and we'll find you again, hopefully, same time next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.